Hey listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at restoresby.org. Enjoy the episode. Holiday Sundays are always difficult for me to kind of formulate some thoughts. I actually asked Kate earlier in the week, I said, do you, you know, you're a mom, do you think you'd want a Mother's Day talk? And she said, I believe the quote was, from you? And I said, well, uh, no, I guess not. I don't, I don't know. Um, so there will be no mansplaining tonight where I talk to the moms uh, and give them good information on what that looks like. Just looking around the room, we are, we're lucky to have so many invested mothers uh, here within our community. We learned so much from you, and we're thankful that you're here. I do have a talk that I think kind of coheres with the theme of today. And that will hopefully be clear as we get into it. I would also like to say this, just because I don't know if you know this, um, but we do have people that listen to our podcast from time to time. Actually, we've had, this, this is, let's just take a moment here. We've had about 1,500 listens over the past two and a half weeks, two and a half to three weeks. It's pretty cool. Now... We can pinpoint some of the people that are helping us along in that, namely because we've been putting some music out, um, some of the stuff that we've recorded on Sunday evenings, which I'll also have you know, Josh Revel puts in massive amounts of time into mixing and mixing and mastering some of these songs so that they sound pretty good. Uh, but we do have a couple of people that have said, yeah, I like to wake up each morning to the TRP worship band and listen to those songs over and over. And they don't know this, but I can see, since I'm the administrator of that page, I can see who's listening to what and how many times they're listening to it. And we're talking triple digits here, people, okay? So that's pretty, pretty cool, but I won't put that person on the spot this evening. Um, okay, so this evening we're going to read a passage of scripture that is one that doesn't necessarily get a lot of play within the church community. I would dare say that there's no way on earth you've ever heard a sermon on this passage of scripture, which is pretty cool, but also maybe setting us up for some, some interesting conversation here. This is Romans chapter 16, and it's going to be a list of names, people that Paul is greeting at the end of his letter. Romans is, uh, within the history of the church, known as one of the most beautiful and theologically dense letters. And actually, I was just reading a book a few weeks ago and on accident learned that Paul's letters trump any other letters in in antiquity with regard to the size and the scope of these letters. I forget the amount of words that are in Romans, but it is so much more than any other of the average-sized letters. And Paul is just pouring his heart out to these people here. And this is Romans chapter 16. He's going to end with a a bunch of greetings and names. And I want this to kind of focus our talk. I also, um, just to clue us in as to where we're going, 
the names in red, which some of you with good eyes will be able to see, the names in red, those are women that Paul is greeting. That's going to kind of tip my hand as to what it is that we're thinking about this evening. So this is Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrabus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. The word of God for the people of God. You're darn right. So um, we're thinking this evening about the diversity in the family, and one of the distinct honors and privileges that I have as an ordained minister of the Lord is to be present at a lot of weddings and sometimes get to officiate these weddings. And you can see that when you go to a wedding, especially with that that view that I have looking out over the whole crew, you can see the diversity in the families. And you know that each family has that one or two or 19 people. You know what I'm talking about? Especially on the dance floor, you can see who these people are. I should add that if you're shaking your head saying, no, perhaps you might be that one or two or part of that 19, um, that, that kind of just is interesting in, in the, the dearest uh, sense of the term there, but you can, you can also see the diversity of the families when you hit the dance floor, and sometimes they will surprise you. But Kate and I were at a wedding last year, and this was one of those moments where the diversity in the family was showing up with the stereotypical crazy uncle. And this was not a dry wedding, so there, you know, people were having a nice time, and the drinks were flowing, and we hit the dance floor, and there's a crazy uncle who starts moving a bit. And at one point, he approaches my wife and says, I call this one the T-Rex. And he did something like that. And Kate, for some odd reason, was like, yeah, all right. 
and I think Cassidy and I were off to the side, and Cassidy's like filming it on her phone, and like we're kind of thinking that this is crazy, but there was diversity in the family from the very straight-laced business people to that crazy uncle that maybe had a couple glasses too many of wine that was doing the T-Rex on the dance floor. And if you have per chance, seen some videos flying around with me in it, featuring some of my dance moves, thanks to Miss Mahalat in the back. Don't think less of me. I went to a Christian school, and it's always been a challenge for me on the dance floor. I will tell you, I mean, we're all friends here, so I'll go ahead and tell you, that my routine when I was a kid growing up was to come home from school, and I had videotaped Michael Jackson, The American Dream, which featured Michael Jackson and, and the Jackson 5 and the whole history of the Jackson family, and I would fast forward on my VHS tape to the dance scenes. I'm like 12 or 13 at the time, and I just tried to get all the moves that Michael was doing on the VHS. Mom, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Prior to that, I was more, um, I don't know what the word is, but I would have this piece of cardboard that I would put down on the floor so I could try to break dance. It was actually not a piece of cardboard. It was like this thing that Mom used to like cut out patterns of clothes. That's how all of the really hard dancers, I'm sure, got their, got their big break coming home from the Christian school and dancing on their mother's um, seamstress cardboard paraphernalia. I don't know. There's, but there's diversity in the family. And in that wedding scene, you've got the really straight-laced folks. You've got the people that are kind of into it. And you can see on the dance floor how this diversity goes from one extreme to another extreme. There's also diversity in the biblical family as well. If you just go through the pages of Scripture and you see the different characters in the text, you can see these people and the different um, characteristics that they have. However, in the church, some of that diversity is not always highlighted. It seems as though we hear about some of the same characters over and over and over. And one scholar says in particular that we have missed a very vital point of our diversity as a body, specifically when we look to the Bible and the sermons that are preached. He says this. This is Scott McKnight, who now teaches at Northern Seminary, I believe, in the Chicago area. Very well-known guy. He's written a ton of books. He says, moving toward my second decade of teaching college, and this was probably a decade ago. He's been in the game for a while. He said, more than half of my students had grown up in the church, and of this I am certain. Churches don't talk about the women of the Bible. Of Mary, mother of Jesus, they have heard, and even then not all of what they have heard is accurate. But of the other woman saints of the Bible including Miriam, the prophetic national music director, or Esther, the dancing queen, or Phoebe, the benefactor of Paul's missions, or Priscilla, the teacher, they've heard almost nothing. Now, I can at least say that here at TRP, we've heard of some of these characters, and tonight we're going to introduce you to a couple more, but just for some review, we've been talking about um, Miriam over the past couple weeks. In particular, we looked at the song at the sea last week, and Miriam has this uh, classic refrain at the end of the song, which is normally attributed to Moses. She leads the people uh, with dancing and with timbrels, or a better translation might be with hand drums. It's very... Uh, professional and, and cultic work of the women as they come out to have these victory songs. But in Exodus, the, the refrain that is attributed to her is, sing to the Lord for an overflowing victory, horse and rider he threw into the sea. 
And Miriam is this like professional worship leader that is leading these women in the learned dance moves and the rituals to celebrate God's victory. Now there's some texts or some manuscripts elsewhere that actually attribute some of Moses's longer song in the beginning of chapter 15 to Miriam. It's almost saying it's not just this refrain, but she was actually the one that was leading the entire thing. That's, that's interesting to think through. But we also have met Miriam back in Exodus chapter 2 as this precocious kind of preteen type figure where there's this edict that goes out for every Hebrew woman to kill their baby sons. And Moses' mom says, no, 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 no. So she makes an ark and puts Moses in it and then floats him down the Nile River in hopes that the daughter of Pharaoh would find him. And Miriam is kind of following along, watching this basket floating down. And finally, when Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses, she kind of peeks. This is how I envision it. And this is reading in, but I can see her just like poking her head through the reeds saying, hey, happened to notice you found a baby there. Just didn't know if you wanted a Hebrew wet nurse for him. And she does. So then Miriam has kind of like stuck her neck out there talking to this figure of the empire on behalf of her, her brother. So we've seen Miriam and, and the role that she's played. And Exodus has actually featured a lot of women throughout this story. Last week, we also introduced you to Deborah and Yael. I love that name, Yael. I'm telling you, moms, if you're having kids anytime soon, tuck that one away. The next woman also has a pretty cool name as well, but we'll get there. Uh, Deborah is this judge within Israel. She's the leader of the entire people more or less. And the way this story unfolds is she says to her commander, her, her military commander, you need to go and get the people that are against us. There's King Jabin of the, the Canaanites, I believe, and his general Sisera. And these are bad dudes that were wanting to do harm to Israel. And Deborah says to her commander, Barak, go get them. And Barak says, I, I'm not going to go without you. She says, fine, but once, once we do this, glory is going to be given into the hands of a woman. And this woman figure, and I won't rehash the entire story, but basically Yael sees Sisera and brings him into her tent with those very soothing Hebrew words, Sura Adonai, Sura Eli, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. I will take care of you. Let me cover you with this blanket. Let me give you some warm milk. You just take a nap. I'll just be out here getting a tent spike and putting it into your temple and then ramming it through while you sleep. Yael, right? She is a bad mamma jamma in every sense of the term. There's also a woman named Halda. Nice strong name again, potential kid names. Halda here. And we don't hear about Halda a lot, but what her story is, it's interesting because King Josiah, one of the good kings of Judah in, in Judahite history, they find the book of the law, which most scholars think is Deuteronomy, and when Josiah reads it, he begins ripping his clothes, saying, what have we done? God is going to be so ticked at us because we haven't done any of this stuff. We need to figure out what it actually says. And the person that they go find to teach them what the Torah is saying, what Deuteronomy is saying, is Huldah. This woman scholar, apparently, that they find, and she, she teaches them what's going on, and she says, listen, it's great that you have turned, but you've turned too late. Judah will be destroyed. 
But that doesn't stop Josiah from initiating what uh, scholars refer to as Josiah's big reform, where he goes into the temples and takes away all of the foreign altars and gets rid of all the uh, foreign gods, and he begins to move Judah back to this stream of following Yahweh because Huldah has instructed them on what the text means and what they should do. And we don't talk about her. Anybody in the room heard of Huldah before five minutes ago. But her story is so incredible, and for some reason, it's been kind of put under the surface. Now, getting to our text in Romans chapter 16, and again, this is a list of greetings that Paul has for his people. Greet so-and-so and greet such-and-such and do this and do that. It's not typically a text that is preached on because there's not a lot there, but I think that there's actually some stuff, and we're going to nerd out for a bit. Not quite yet, but I'll let you know, okay? I have color-coded Greek terms, which I didn't check this. I don't know if we downloaded that font, but you can't see it anyway, so whatever. It'll be color-coded nonsense, if, if nothing else. But it begins with Phoebe. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. Now, some people have downplayed this into she's a deaconess. And, and for some of you that maybe grew up in traditional churches, those were the types of people one commentator said that kind of went downstairs and filled up the communion cups or they got the, got the after service dinners ready. But what most scholars would say is actually she's a leader in the church. She's a leader. And you can see in this passage that Paul is entrusting with the book of Romans I commend to you Phoebe, and especially this is important because at this time, letters of recommendation were important because they didn't know people. They weren't emailing each other. They weren't sending texts saying, hey, I'm, I'm in Jericho. I'm a little bit away from where you are. I'll be on my donkey. They, they, anybody could show up and say, yes, I'm the Apostle Paul. Nice to meet you. I mean, nobody would have any way to check that. So they had these letters of recommendation, and Paul is sending this with Phoebe saying, hey, she's cool. She's with me. I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister. She's a deacon in the church. She's a pretty big deal, people. And he goes on to say, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people. Not only is she traveling around with these important documents, not only has she uh, been one who's a leader in the church, but now Paul is saying, she's, she's helped me financially. She's an important, independent woman. Beyonce would be proud of Phoebe, I think. But one scholar says, this is N.T. Wright, the implication from this text is that Phoebe is a businesswoman who is able to travel independently, and for Paul to trust her with a letter like this, it speaks volumes for the respect in which she was held. So it's no surprise to discover that she is a deacon in the church, and then he concludes with this. She was in a position of leadership, and Paul respected her as such and expected the Roman church to do so as well. Phoebe, I commend her to you. She has done so much for me. Greet her. Listen to her. Some people would even say that in this culture, the person that's bringing the letter would also be the one who's reading the letter out loud. So potentially, this is kind of a reading in, but potentially she could be the first one to read this letter to a group of people. And the person who's reading the letter is also entrusted with answering the questions. And if you've read Romans, I would, I would imagine that a handful of questions would arise. But Phoebe then is the one who is able to answer the questions, potentially. We also meet Priscilla, and this is awesome. This is subtle, and this is awesome. It says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, her husband. 
The way that this text usually introduces these two is Priscilla is fronted, and that's important as we're going to see. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. These two are traveling with Paul uh, throughout a good bit of Acts, so there's a lot of different times in which this could have happened. We don't know which instance Paul is referring to here. It might just be a pattern where they are in such cahoots that they would risk themselves characteristically for for Paul, because Paul was oftentimes um, viewed with some suspicion by people. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And we meet these two back in, in Acts 18. And here it says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. This is where they meet. There uh, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So they share this occupation together, and they also share this camaraderie between each other. It says every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue and they are there to hear this and they're learning from him what is going on. And this is where it gets really interesting towards the end of Acts 18. It says, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos. This is where um, in, uh, I believe it's in Corinthians where Paul says, some of you are baptized in, in uh, Apollos' name Some of you are baptized in somebody else's name. Apollos is like a pretty important guy in the early church. But meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus. So they've traveled from Corinth to Ephesus. It says he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. And this is where it gets interesting. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when Priscilla and Aquila, when they heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Good job, Apollos. Kind of shaky on a couple of aspects here of Paul's theology. Let's just kind of hammer those out together. So within the early church, we have Priscilla and her husband Aquila who are teaching people. And this is in Paul's greeting where he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. These are important people. One scholar says the most obvious deduction of the fact that Priscilla is usually uh, announced first is the fact that Prissa or Priscilla, that's a shortened version of her name, was the more dominant of the two or of higher social status, and she may either have provided the financial resources for the business or have been the brains of the operation. Can we just pause there and say that's pretty neat? But she doesn't get much play within the church. And this isn't really an argument for the ordination of women. This isn't an argument for that kind of stuff. But these people are kind of subverted and, and not talked about within, within the church, proving McKnight's point that nobody really knows who these people are or what their importance was. It says that Mary, greet Mary, she, she has worked very hard for you. Mary's a common name. We don't know who this is, and we don't know what this refers to, but it's worth at least pausing where we see that Paul is, is wanting to include these people in his list of greetings. Now this one. This one's going to be where we, we get nerdy for a second, okay? This is Unia. Greet uh, Andronicus and Unia. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. This is a debated passage. The role of unia in the early church. Um, One early church father, and this is in the fourth century, his name's John Chrysostom. I believe he was called the golden tongue because of how well he preached. 
I think. You might have to Google check me on that one. But he says, to be an apostle is something great, but to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title of apostle. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh man, I've never heard of Unia at all, and now we're learning that she might be one of the early apostles, followers of Jesus, maybe that's striking you as a bit odd. And it struck a lot of people as a bit odd as well because they have worked hard to put this, to subvert this teaching and to bury it in a, in a sea of footnotes. I have here my color-coded terms here because we have Unia, which is a feminine name, in this time, but some people thought, well, that can't be right because there are no women apostles, so there must be a mistake, and perhaps the name is Unius, or as he was known on the playground of Jewish school, Unianus. <laughs> I was cracking up in my office when I thought of that. I was like, this one's going to go over real well, you know? Unianus. It'd probably be uh, Unianus, but still, that's... That one's universal, and that one's for free. You can take that to your parties with you if you want. Um, but Unius would be a shortened version of Unianus, which is a masculine name, which is why I have it in blue here. No. Okay, so basically, in the Greek text, that's not Greek. We, didn't, we don't have the, the font loaded up, and I forgot to tell you, Doug, 10 minutes before it was go time. Okay, what happens in Greek um, texts, there are no stress marks. And the whole hinge of if this is masculine or feminine um, is reduced to where to put the stress on this. This whole thing's going to be shot now. Look at it. It's gross. Would have been really great, effective teaching. It took me about 15 minutes to work out this slide. Note to the teachers, never trust your technology. I learned that in my education classes. Never trust it. Back then, though, it was like never trust the bulb of your overhead projector because it just might not be there. So anyway, um, the stress, if it was a feminine term, it would be union, or if it was a masculine term, it would be union. <laughs> clear, right? It's super clear. But there are no stress marks, so this, this comes down to someone's interpretation. Now, here's the interesting part. Unia is a common name in this time. Unius is not. There are no attestations of this name at all. This decision to make Unius a masculine term was solely based on the fact that people couldn't wrap their brains around the fact that a woman was an apostle. One scholar says the simple fact is that the masculine form has been found nowhere else, and the name is more naturally taken as Unia, as was taken for granted by the patristic commentators, those are the early church fathers, and indeed through the Middle Ages. This didn't change until about the 13th century. I hope that's landing where it is, because for a long time this was a woman, and then all of a sudden it was like, no, it can't be, let's change it. And then it just became that we were getting back on board with Unia as a woman, maybe 40 years ago within the world of scholarship. So people have buried this fact, and there's been a death and resurrection of, of Unia, but what most people would say now is it's clear that she's a woman, and it's clear that she's an apostle. And we don't talk about it. 
I don't know what to attribute that to, but we have a diverse family, then sometimes that diversity is not highlighted. We also have Rufus's mom. You know Rufus's mom. She makes the great mac and cheese. <laughs> Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother. She's been a mother to me too, Paul says. I'd love to read in on that, especially on Mother's Day, where we just highlight Rufus's mom, you know, just like cooking Paul a lot of food and just really mothering him, washing his, his cloak dusting off sandals. I don't know enough about what they wore back then, but you, like she was just, Rufus's mom, she was just really loving on Paul. And she's been that motherly figure in all of the people's lives in the early church in this place. And he's saying, greet Rufus and his mom. Churches don't talk about the women of the Bible. And this is a really short list and this is a, a dense list, especially when you're looking at Romans 16, and it's just a list of, of names with the stories behind them, which leads me to ask the question, why in the world don't we talk about these people? You know, there's diversity in our family as followers of Jesus. There's diversity here in this room. There's diversity today as we think about Mother's Day, and this is how I'm trying to tie this all together, because for some of us, Mother's Day is a really difficult day. As we think about the mothers that we have lost. For some of you, um, it's about the kids that we're unable to have or have struggled to have. Maybe for some of us, it's about the fractured relationships that we have with our children. And sometimes even that diversity gets kind of put under the rug as well. Man, I woke up this morning, and this is not, this is not to bust anybody that has been on social media because I think it is great to give praise to moms. I love my mom and the role that she's played in my life. I was at the wedding yesterday thinking about um, when the groom was dancing with his mom. And Kate and I remember that we didn't really, mom and I didn't, didn't dance at our wedding. But, you know, I told you my, my pedigree. I was a break dancer. And I remember moving sometimes from the cardboard cutout into the kitchen and me and mom just kind of dancing in the kitchen. So whether or not we shared that dance in front of everyone. We had our, our dances. But as I'm looking at Facebook and thinking about all these great posts and just understanding that there's also people that probably can't look at Facebook today that are so hurt and filled with pain as to what's going on perhaps in their own life or with the loss of their own mother. There's a poem that we've read a few times as a church. This is actually the third year that we've done this. But I think that it kind of symbolizes at least some of this diversity that we feel as the family, representing all kinds of things underneath the surface. It's not just that we diminish the roles of, of women, perhaps, but it's also the things that are going on internally. Sometimes those get diminished as well. This is a poem called The Wide Spectrum of Mothering. It says, to those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or kids running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. 
To those who have at any point lost their mothers, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who placed children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering, this poem says, is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst, and we remember you. I use this passage in Romans 16 just to show the diversity of the family of God. And as we see these people that we don't usually focus any attention on and the stories that they represent, whether it's Rufus's mom or Phoebe carrying this dense theological letter or Junia, one of the early apostles, or Priscilla, the teacher, any of these folks in the New Testament or the Old Testament that we don't necessarily understand. There's also people within our midst that have stories that we don't celebrate enough. To reduce Mother's Day to one moment is not enough, and I'm hopeful that in situations where we have moms that have poured into us that we can praise them and love them each and every day. But I'm also hopeful that for people in the room that can't look at Facebook today, and perhaps even coming here and hearing some of this is difficult for you, I'm hopeful that we can remember you as well and celebrate the diversity that we have here. And I'm hopeful also that we can celebrate together the hope that we have through the risen Christ who unites us all, who says, in me there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and nor female. Where we see this unity that we have, and I actually hope that that's played out where we can get involved in the details of each other's stories and to remember the diversity that's present here within our own family and celebrate it together. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.